Hey, it's Alex Williams of the New Stack. Welcome to the New Stack Makers, a podcast where we talk about application development, deployment, and management at scale. Citrix offers production-grade, fully supported application delivery solutions that provide the most comprehensive integration with Kubernetes platforms and open source tools, greater scale and lower latency, consistent application and API security, and a holistic observability stack. We are here for another episode of the New Stack Makers. Today, we are talking video conferencing and the scale-out architecture from 8 by 8 Joining me in the conversation are two people who I'm looking forward to chatting with. Pankaj Gupta, Senior Director of Marketing at Citrix, and Lance Johnson, Director of Engineering Cloud R&D at 8 by 8 Thank you both for joining us. Thanks, Thanks for having us. us. You bet. So we're going to talk about microservices, and we're going to be talking about how you're using microservices to better really build out that collaboration portfolio that you have at 8 by 8 we ran a story in April about the 8x8 video conferencing. It went up by 50% when we reported that in April. How is the scale of traffic today, and what are you projecting? Well, that's a good question. I mean, it's we were, I have data of like the amount of throughput that was going through our systems at the time. I, I'm not in the actual meetings group, so I don't have like the product level stuff of users and stuff like that, but. I do know that we went from like gigabit throughput to 50 gigabit throughput at its peak, which was a huge increase. And our active participants got up into the hundreds of thousands. Like they peaked at a thousand before the rush and then they peaked at like a couple hundred thousand. So it was a huge, huge jump in usage. So that usage, when you say gigabit throughput, that is the actual kind of load yeah. on the network? Yeah. It was under a gigabit per second, and now it peaks over approximately 50 gigabits per second each day. That's huge. Is that increasing? It peaked at around 50 gigabits per second. It's fluctuating around there right now. So that's where you expected to remain yeah. for a while? Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. And had you ever had that kind of peak load before this? No, it's kind of an amazing story. I mean, the group running the Jitsi community, open source community, 8x8 acquired them from Atlassian uh, yeah. last year. And within six months, we fully integrated. I mean, it was such a fast integration within our platform, like seamlessly. It was amazing that they were able to, because we already had a meeting product and service we were using and we swapped them out almost seamlessly because the platform was so good. And then a few months later, <laughs> you know, the whole stay at home stuff slammed us with the traffic. It was exactly what everyone needed to achieve that. And so, yeah, it's been a crazy ride. Pankaj, I was talking with Lance a little bit beforehand about how Citric works with 8x8. And he was speaking to the load balancers and how the load balancers have suited well the 8x8 needs and requirements. My question for you is, are you seeing similar stories to 8x8 out there where you're seeing this loads increase and Kubernetes becoming a part of the story for companies and trying to get through these new demands? Absolutely. We see three big transitions happening in market. The number one is move to the cloud. So our customers are moving more and more applications and infrastructure to the cloud. 
Second trend which we see is the application architecture modernizing themselves. So taking the monolithic applications and really transitioning them to microservices-based application for a better agility, for a better scalability, and also the portability. And the third transition which we are seeing is in this current pandemic environment is the loads on infrastructure as well as for applications are increasing very heavily because more and more people are working from home and applications are the lifeline of the business. So with those loads on the infrastructure, and that's kind of the part that I'm interested in, you see more and more people working from home. What are the infrastructure that these companies have had that they're needing to transition from to be able to keep up with the loads that they're now experiencing? I think moving to the infrastructure to cloud really helps auto scaling them and also infrastructure on demand. So that's the biggest trend which we see at this moment. And when we increase the infrastructure capacity, you have to also increase the capacity of related components, whether it's a load balancing or other features. And load balancing for you, Lance, was one of the chief requirements. Tell me about the requirements that you have for load balancing. Yeah, so once we lifted all the development and all the services up into Kubernetes, then our chief requirement became how easily does Kubernetes work with whatever provisions for getting connections into the cluster. So we started in Amazon and the Kubernetes code base has providers that it knows how to talk to them. So you can stay native Kubernetes and not even realize that you're spinning up an ELB or a load balancer from Google or, or whatnot. And so that became our requirement. It's like, hey, that's the pattern we like. We want to stay that way. And when we bring it back on-prem, we want to keep that same experience for the developers. And so Citrix's Netscalers that they have fit that bill perfectly. Like we had a modicum of annotations, very few annotations that we changed. Otherwise, everything else was exactly the same. And it was able to provision everything it needed to connect the traffic. Our main requirement was just since the developers were moved up to native Kubernetes, it needed to be the same experience regardless. Like they've gotten to the point where they honestly don't even know where they're deployed. They just know that their manifest defines their workflows and it works. So we wanted to keep them there so that it was a better experience for them. And so the Citrix was the best product for giving that same experience that they've gotten when we deployed in the cloud on-prem. So, And we hear that consistently from other customers also because as IT transitions from monolithic applications to microservices-based applications, they also want an operational consistency for load balancers or the proxies, which as they are called in microservices environment. So there is a less learning curve, feature consistency is there, and they can transition from existing monolithic applications to microservices-based applications much faster having the operational consistency. And uh, Citrix load balancers or ADCs have the same code base, whether you deploy them in microservices environment or in for monolithics or for public cloud or in private cloud or any form factor, we bring that operational consistency. And 8x8 is really a pioneer in their journey to microservices-based application. And Lens and his team has driven a really fantastic migration to it with a very crisp strategy and a very careful planning. Okay, so it really comes down to that code base. Really, it's like Pankaj, you know, you're practicing kind of those principles of infrastructure as code, it really seems like that. Absolutely. 
Excellent. So Lance, you're talking about the developers uh, mm -hmm. needing that consistent experience. Tell me about the consistent experience that developers are asking for. What is it that you're finding is really important for those developers in that experience, which is it's a big issue? Yeah, so we containers were relatively new and, and using Kubernetes relatively new. We worked with a development team that created the new framework for microservices. And so part of that framework is a lot of scaffolding. And so they generate a lot of this stuff for the developers so that not every single developer needs to know, you know, all the nuances of the different components. It's just there automatically for them and allows them to focus specifically on what's the product I'm doing or what's the value I'm trying to deliver. I don't need to worry about metrics or logs or how does it start and stop or how do I get it to the location where it needs to be deployed and stuff. So Kubernetes gave us that insulated layer and so no matter if it's in any of the different clouds or on-prem, to them, they no longer have to worry about that. You know, the framework generates that for them, and they can just focus on the value that they're trying to deliver to the end user. Tell me about that framework. Yeah, so we're a big Java house. We're like 80%, maybe even 90% Java code at 8x8. It's based off of Spring, so a lot of that, that open source project and all those objects and stuff like that. So we use, you know, the Spring Cloud Admin, the Spring Cloud Config, those kind of services to provide administrative view and get changes dynamically injected into a service even without having to restart it. So if someone needs to update a config parameter for a particular service, it's just a git commit and then it flows to the service. So along with all that Java code that's provided as part of the framework, there's a prototype that scaffolds up all the other stuff like uh, the pipeline definition for creating the artifacts and getting it someplace. And then the actual manifests for Kubernetes and the Helm charts. And most of the teams consuming it, their Helm chart is one line. It's just one include, and it includes it from a template that is maintained by that main team it's that we call it Cloud8. And so any updates to any type of Kubernetes object, whether it's a deployment or a service or an ingress, we can just update that template. And then the next time people deploy, they, they automatically get that value. To them, they just stay in their code and they stay in their service and they don't need to worry about all the other stuff. It, it also includes the service discovery. It uses the Kubernetes built-in service discovery within the clusters for discovering where, finding their dependencies and whatnot. They don't have to have too much hard coded for that. Okay. So that really sounds like your start with microservices began with that framework, didn't it? To be blunt about, I mean, it was the best implementation of microservices. I mean, we've, we've over the years, I mean, like I said, 8x8's 25-year-old company, and we've taken a stab at microservices many different times. But this is the first time that a team was like mandated, make everyone's lives better. And they were also given the power to say, okay, this is how we're going to do it. And they chose a framework that the industry kind of has validated over and over again. And it just, it just worked. Like they take the approach of use as much as possible as already out there, that the whole build off the shoulders of giants. And then if there's a unique thing that we have to add, then worst case scenario, we'll add it. But like most of it's just built off those objects that already existed out there in the open source community. So it was, it made it just an easier experience for everyone. So. So let's talk about that drive to build out that microservices architecture. Mm -hmm. Did that stem from anything in particular? Did it stem from the need to differentiate business? We see microservice development, we often see it's because of some problem people are having. Right. Yes. I mean, you know, 8x8 has grown over the years through acquisitions as well. So there's a bunch of different infrastructure. There's a bunch of different teams and 
you know, a lot of times teams would do really good work, but no one would know about it or they would only help them. And so then that kind of breeds a problem because like if that team disseminates or goes away or whatever, then you've got the technical debt of, does everyone understand that framework and stuff like that? So when this team came in and did that, they focused on open source frameworks that were well-known across the industry, regardless of which company you work from and built off of that. And they espoused it across all the different teams, regardless of where they came from. And so with those two combined, then they provide so much value that the teams can stop focusing on the mundane and start focusing on exactly what they can deliver to the customer. And the open source platforms and tools are a big part of Citrix strategy for cloud native application delivery. Actually, Citrix supports the broadest uh, open source platform and tool integration today. So our customers can get their applications to the production fast with out of the box integration of their choice of open source platform. We see four categories of open source platforms and tools. First is Kubernetes platform, second is observability, third is the CI-CD tool, and fourth is really the network and control plane. So for Kubernetes platforms, we support the Google GKE, Azure Kubernetes services, Amazon EKS, and also Red Hat OpenShift. For observability, we support all the most popular tools like Prometheus, Grafana, Elasticsearch, Kibana, Jipkin, you name it. And for CI/CD, it's Spinnaker. And for network and control plane, for customers who wants to move to the service mesh, we integrate with Istio and also support the Helm, CNI, and many other protocols. So we really want to help our customers with their open source strategy and give them a pre-integrated solutions. And many of these code examples you can find on GitHub today from Citrix. That's quite a modern lineup there. You must have a lot of feedback for these folks and these developing these third-party tools on the challenges your customers face and how they can reach that next level. We're finding now that the plumbing is there, and I think what you say speaks to that, but now it's a matter of building on top of the plumbing and being able to see those realities emerge, like I think what Lance is talking about. So I'm curious from either of you, what are the tools like out there, those third-party tools? Are they still kind of tools that they need a lot more to them? Yeah, I'm sure it varies quite a bit, but you know, anything specifically about any of the particular tools, I know people out there who are listening to this podcast would find this very helpful. <laughs> you mean development tools or like tools yeah, for yeah, Kubernetes? Like, or? I mean, there's infrastructure tools, for instance. I mean, the, the Istio uh, right. you know, tools and technologies, for instance. Uh, uh, continuous delivery, I'm thinking of, you know, Helm and you know, other continuous yeah. delivery kind of environments. And yeah, we have a funny story where like we started in the road of the Kubernetes and we started getting this new framework, Cloud8, into Kubernetes and we had Jenkins for our pipelines and we were using kubectl and charts that we'd written and we were blasting it at the clusters and we were close to getting like commit to production for that flow. And then the guy that was running the Cloud8 framework woke up in a sweat like one night. He's like, wait, if I have to recreate an entire Kubernetes cluster, what am I going to do? Like, am I going to go through all these Jenkins jobs and find all these random Kubernetes manifests and try and recreate that environment? And so that's when we found Helm and it really felt, we found a lot of relief because, you know, it treats it like a yum update for your entire cluster, if you're right. And, and then it focused it down to, you have a kind of many-to-many -many mapping of 
a Helm chart that defines my service and then how many different clusters do I need to get it to in any particular environment. And that was a tool that actually was hard to find something off the shelf. We ended up writing a, a minimal tool that's just a metadata mapping between service and where it should get deployed. Because along with that, there's every one of those combinations of mappings could come with a custom set of value overrides for the Helm chart and stuff like that. So it desperately begged for some system to maintain that. And so we call it our global deployment system. So I don't know if I answered your question with respect to tools, but... <laughs> no, that, that's interesting that you need to create custom. Yeah, Helm was a huge, we felt, kind of savior. I know there's different varying degrees of like or dislike for it, but uh, for us, it was a godsend because it, it created a whole new type of artifact, which is not just the code, but it's like the context of the workflow for that code and then the metadata around it based on the context of where it's going. And so we had to evolve. That became something that needed to be historically tracked as well. So Pankaj, in terms of your own third-party integrations, what have been some of the challenges with some of these infrastructure tools that you're seeing out there and, or just some of the adaptations you just had to make just because of your own existing infrastructure? I think what we see from our customers, very diverse implementation and a skill set for open source tools. Typically, the large companies or startups who have uh, implemented microservices for a long time, they are embracing more and more open source tools. But many of the customers who are just starting that journey, they are acquiring that skill set and started including more and more open source tools. There is not a single tool we say everybody is using, but we certainly see Prometheus and Grafana being very popular here. Customers who are thinking to transition from CI/CD to really automated continuous deployment, they are looking at the tools like Spinnaker. And I think almost every customer which we see for service mesh, most of them are considering Istio integration with it. Most are considering Istio. Why is that? Is it just seen as the leader in that category? I think their feature velocity is pretty high. It has some teething troubles uh, two years back, but uh, most of them is being sorted out. And also the big support with Google Cloud Platform is really driving behind it. So Google is very committed for Istio for that. And there is a very vibrant uh, development community behind Istio. And also a lot of uh, industry vendors and customers also. Yeah, that's one of my regrets for our journey is early on when we were starting with Kubernetes, it seemed daunting that all the teams needed to learn it and it looked complex and stuff. And at the same time, Itzio was starting to get really popular, but it, it looked just as complex as Kubernetes. So eventually, kind of the teams decided, well, let's just, let's not worry about that for now. Let's just focus on learning Kubernetes and get that up and running and everything. But now, several years later, we desperately want to mature our service mesh and increase that usage and start using it. And now it's to retrofit what we've put out there, it seems even more daunting. Like now we got to learn it's AO and reroute all of our traffic and stuff through that new layer. So I kind of regret that I didn't push harder for that when we were first looking at that stuff. What do you have to do to reroute it? What is the time and cost of that from a engineering investment point of view? 
Well, it's mainly just making sure the teams understand the new workflow. Like right now, we just use cloud load balancers to kind of front the origins, wherever they come from, whether it's on-prem or in the cloud. And it's pretty rudimentary, but like a service mesh would be a whole nother control plane, essentially, that people would need to learn how to interact with all the different disparate groups and stuff. And so that's the biggest daunting is just in introducing that change. In the end, it will probably, I mean, obviously it'll make a big difference and it can improve a bunch of different things, but it's that upfront learning curve, I guess, is the, the challenge. And I think the driver for many of the customers which we hear is to move to the service mesh environment and Istio is the control plane for service mesh. Yeah. And what service mesh brings the value to our customers is the number one, it gives very robust security among the microservices. The security is a very big driver for east-west traffic. Mm -hmm. Second one, which we see is very granular traffic control. So you can actually define which microservices can speak to other microservices. And many of the microservices in communication inside the cluster is pretty much like a blind box for most of our customers. They have put a great ingress or north-south security, but they have not implemented great east-west security. So that's the next phase which we see from our customer. And uh, third area which we see our customers really like the service mesh is the visibility and observability. Yep. And uh, any load balancer or Citrix ADC is a very advantage point there because it is in, the, in line with all the communication between microservices. And being in line, it has the visibility of all the traffic among the microservices. So we can create a great logs, uh, matrices, have the visibility for your east-west traffic. Second one is it also steer the traffic for CI-CD, whether you are doing a blue-green deployment or you are doing progressive rollout or you are doing canary deployment. So that also is a great, great advantage point. And the third is it sees all the traffic. So you can put the security policies into that. So when you are considering service mesh, your load balancer or proxy or ADC, whatever you call, plays a very critical role for all these three functionalities. Make no mistakes, uh, service meshes are complex, as Lance has said when they started mm -hmm. the journey. But we are seeing more and more customers consider service mesh as their North Star architecture. Yeah, there's another use case that uh, we ran into where like, you get a framework for microservices that might include a whole bunch of microservices, like, you know, like the Spring Cloud Admin and the config and all that stuff. And development environments could become too big for an average laptop. So you need to have a cluster deployed, but then they want to iterate over their service local to their laptop. So there's room for having a development cluster with a service mesh that connects to the laptop so that they can, you know, iterate and make changes constantly on a container locally deployed on their laptop, but they're talking to an infrastructure in a Kubernetes cluster somewhere else, right? So that's another thing I always think that a, a service mesh could help with because they could spin something up and it would connect to the right infrastructure and then they don't have to run 20 extra deployments that make up the microservices foundation on their laptop. You know, when you think about kind of these capabilities that service mesh provides and they're really made for microservices and microservices come with containers and container orchestration environments. 
And when it is traced back further, you see how vast these architectures are. You know, I'm curious if you could provide an idea of the scale that 8x8 has. I mean, it's not unusual for a traditional enterprise to run 50 to 100,000 virtual machines. In these new microservices environments, you're talking about millions of containers, right? Um, can you provide us or some perspective on the scale here and what because because that helps understand driving the microservices and driving the need for service mesh. Like I said, we've grown by acquisition, so there's a bunch of different companies doing it differently. So, but I can speak to kind of the core of the voice stuff. We have like close to 50 clusters across four different promotional stages. In production, there's probably 20 different ones in all the different regions. A typical cluster has probably 200 services deployed on it, which I'm ballparking at this point could be around a thousand containers. I kind of feel like we're we're not overly huge at this point. It could get much bigger, but mm. uh, it seems to be good steady state for us right now. So 1K containers for those 200 services? Yeah. Our VMs across the clouds and the and on-prem, yeah, we're we're like in the the tens of thousands of those of the VMs of the kind of traditional stuff we had before Kubernetes came along. So where are you on that journey then, in terms of your microservices development? You know, where now you're running 200 services on a cluster. Mm -hmm. I would say we're going along really well. I don't know, like maybe we're a teenager. <laughs> you were gonna say like. We can't vote yet, but we can drive. I don't know. <laughs> what is it that you need to do to mature more than, I mean, a teenager doesn't always know when they become an adult. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, for yourself, uh, you know, for you know, the context of understanding kind of your own development, you know, what is it that will make you an adult, do you think? I would think uh, with respect to microservices, if we get to the point where, 80 to 90% of all deployments are a Kubernetes manifest. Like right now, since we have, you know, 25 year history there, we've got every single type of deployment mechanism you can think of. And so once we don't have to have, you know, 20, 30 different experts all on each one of these different deployment mechanisms, and every single team can have that same feeling of, I don't care where it's working I, or where it's running. I don't even know where it's running. I just know it works because I've got my manifest and the manifest defines the workflow and what's healthy, what's a healthy state, what's not, and it automatically reacts. Like, So moving that dial so that more than half of our infrastructure is like that, I think that would be a good gauge. That's interesting. So where are you now? 80, 90% all deployments are Kubernetes manifest. Where are you now? 50, 60, 40? Um, every single team has started using our, this cloud eight framework. I would say we're probably 30%. I don't, it's just kind of gut feeling. It's not real. I'm yeah. not backing that by actual numbers, but. Um, right. That's fine. No, I'm just trying to get some picture. With, with the history of the infrastructure, there is a lot of physical stuff that is pre-existing that doesn't have access to a Kubernetes cluster yet. So we, we keep maintaining that and keep, you know, updating that and. And so as we progressively spread out more and more clusters, then they'll have the opportunity to make those moves right now. And sometimes they, they can't because it's just not available to them. Right. And uh, so you really need uh, to have those experts really to help uh, get the manifest in, in place. And that seems like to be like, there's kind of like, there's like this, nothing proceeds at a kind of a, a standard pace. It might be, right. you know, 
big jumps here, big, you know, smaller jumps in other places. But I'm wondering from you, uh, Pankaja, what's the similarity to other customers? What's the difference you're seeing? I think uh, there are a lot of similarities what we hear from customers. Uh, first is the motivation for moving to microservices. The three primary reasons, as Lance has also talked about, we hear same from our customers. Number one is the modular application, modular application architecture, which actually breaks the application into small services. And each service can be developed, deployed, and auto-scale independently. And that independently is the key, which comes from the modular application architecture. Second reason for our customers, which we hear for moving to microservices, is the faster releases. So you can enable a very frequent application update. Sometimes many updates in a day, and also an automated continuous delivery. And third is the portability. I think portability is the nirvana which every customer is looking because each microservice is a self-contained runtime. So you can port application across the clouds with much less complexity and no cloud lock. So those are the consistent reasons which we hear. Uh, second is about the deployment models. Almost every customer we talk with, they are seriously considering open source tools and choosing one of the platforms between AWS, Google, or Azure, or Red Hat OpenShift. So that's the second trend which we see. Third trend which we see consistently from our customers is that it takes a village for microservices. You have to take care of platform team, application developer, DevOps team, security ops. Yep. And it's and they are, each stakeholder has unique requirement and unique care about. So moving to microservices touches much broader part of the IT organization. So bringing them together and addressing each and individual needs is the most critical. And it is a cultural shift for many of the IT organizations where they live in their silos. So Kubernetes is the unification driver for many of the IT organizations. Last and most important, which we hear that journey to Kubernetes is not easy. Finding talent is not easy. It may be different in West Coast or certain pockets of the globe, but finding talent and resources is challenging. So I'm so excited about 8x8 that they have been a kind of a pioneer of journey and really embrace upon this journey. So Lance, in terms of that you know, analogy to a village and you know all the constituents in the village, how... Have you seen that evolve at 8x8? Yeah, I mean, it's the lifting the workflow definition up under Kubernetes, that logical definition, and kind of, I mean, the old joke, right, is you can solve every problem with another layer of abstraction, right? So like, but this one actually really is vetting itself to be true, because like, once it's up there, then they don't need to worry about can I get to a load balancer? Is this connected? Is it going to restart? Is it being checked for health? Like how is all that stuff? Mm -hmm. Once it's all done, like, and then the operations team can settle down and just focus on, okay, you know, I've got the control planes working fine. The worker nodes are okay. Like 
and the system, you know, allows itself to recover. I mean, my elevator pitch for Kubernetes, I mean, I started, I did a lot in Amazon first, is it takes all the best things you can do and all the coolest stuff you can do in Amazon or any cloud provider that automates that stuff and lifts it up to the point where you can put it anywhere because you're, you're abstracted from the actual, what is the compute that's running my container? So it simplifies, I think, for that, to get to your question about the, the village, it reduces the complexity, even though it is a complex system to get up and running and get set up. Once it's in place, the operational complexity is reduced because it does do a lot of stuff for your team. So then they can just focus on, like I said, the, is the control plane ready? Is the worker group available and healthy and stuff like that? So this gets into day two issues and it's something I'd like to kind of finish up with in our discussion here. One of the day two issues you see developing is like observability, right? So you really don't know what you don't know, right? Yep. And until you start discovering those unknown unknowns, then you know, you're really not going to be able to be managing the infrastructure and architectures yep. uh, efficiently. So how does observability fit into that day two? So it's paramount, especially with an ephemeral environment like Kubernetes, where the container just could disappear. If you're not focused on getting your metrics and your logs somewhere where they can be seen or observed, then you can lose track of what's going on. You don't know what's going on. So we have a whole team devoted to that and managing, you know, vendor selections and like tool selections and like, and the framework for the observability. I don't know if they did this on purpose, but like <laughs> the acronym for that team is Cloud Observability Platform Services, but we call them the COPS because <laughs> they help <laughs> us patrol and like make sure that we can see everything. It's, it's funny. Um, but yeah, the development, the Cloud 8 framework, they also brought in an APM. So that kind of kicked off a lot of visibility that really made people excited about as long as the framework takes care of that, then my life is so much better. And so then the COPS team came along and is expanding that to many other tools and stuff. So like we've partnered with Lightstep for distributed tracing. We use WaveCell for metrics. We do use New Relic for kind of the out of the box, just immediately get metrics without having to do a whole lot of advanced development work to understand it. But once we kind of know the perfect workflows to instrument, then we move it over to Wavefront and instrument it there because you can get much more a much longer history and a much more data for a, a significantly reduced cost compared to just a raw APM that does all the work for you. And the Citrix strategy for observability is built upon two principles. One is the observability as a stack, and the second one is the openness. And observability as a stack really addresses the key issue of the fragmentation. The traditional three pillars have been logging, matrices, and tracing. But you have to look at collectively to identify your problems into your Kubernetes environments faster and also troubleshoot them faster. So our stack is really purpose-built for SREs, and it is built on four key components, this stack. One is the logging, for which we integrate with Elasticsearch and Kibana. Second one is the matrices, which is the integration with Prometheus, Grafana, and Kibana. Tracing, as Lance talked about, we integrate with Open Tracing and Zipkit. The fourth component for our stack is really the service graph. As we move into the microservices environment, 
logs matrices the tracing is good but these microservices are interdependent on each other you have to know that what is the health of these microservices how is the communication between the microservices you will love to see how these microservices interact with each other in a simple logical diagram and that's where we invested so much time energy and resources to build service graphs so you can see in a very simple format that what are the microservices you have and how they are independent and communicating with each other and this becomes more and more important when you cross the threshold of 10 15 or 20 mm-hmm. microservices and let's talk about around 200 microservices so if you have to know that the health of each microservices and how they are interacting with each other that's where the service graph really comes into that play and this is the part of the citrix adm which is our control plane and management platform for all our adcs but second principle of our strategy is for observability is also openness so if you want to use adm you can absolutely use it but if you like to export the logs matrices tracing to your preferred open source tool or the apm as lens have talked about we also support that too but observability is the very very critical requirement for mm-hmm. transition to microservices and our advice to our customers and sres and it teams so that don't look at observability in a very fragmented view look at as a stack are you covering all the key components which you require to know your environment know the problems before they happen and fix them fast so the components of the stack and perform the observability across those components yes okay so uh we didn't talk a lot about security but i'm curious on how that's going to evolve as you think about your architecture's development and this seems to be kind of what you're talking about is this transition from monolithic architectures but they'll always be there i'm not of the belief that monoliths disappear so i'm just curious on security as a as a kind of a you know way to kind of explore how you're thinking about your architecture and its a uh, evolution Yeah, that's I think where the the service mesh can go a long way because because you have a control plane that can you know control all the connections or the the logic behind all the connections then you you have a central location to distribute out security related restrictions and stuff like that whereas otherwise you either need to institute it in some config management that then goes and overlays a whole bunch of IP tables and it's just there's nothing out there that could do it as well. So service mesh you don't have to necessarily just restrict it to just kubernetes you can there there are agents that can connect it to even the legacy infrastructure as well and then you pick up that one stop shopping for all of your security stuff your your visibility of what you need to secure and then distributing it out from a central place and i think in kubernetes environment security becomes squared first there you have to look at how the traffic is coming to your cluster and is that secure and that's traditionally has been the role of web application firewalls and that functionality is integrated into adc so you can implement those application in api security through web application firewalls and now bot management and api rate limiting included into ingress controllers that's i think very well understood 
environment for almost all of our customers. What is less understood and less deployment that how do I protect the east-west traffic? Mm-hmm. And here the east-west traffic is just what Lance talked about, that when my microservices are talking to each other inside a cluster, how well are they protected? And if you look at the old Kubernetes uh, implementation, there is a very little security for east-west traffic or communication inside microservices communication. And that's where the service mesh plays a very critical role because you can implement the policies for east-west traffic. And another big component there for east-west traffic is all these microservices are communicating through each other on APIs. So you have to bring the API security also. You will never like to have your uh, credit card processing microservice, which are your social security, HR records processing microservice to speak with your security facilities, uh, door opener or badge reader. Mm -hmm. So you have to implement those security policies for various microservices. And that's where the east-west traffic really comes into that. So that is purely for microservices. But when you look at one level up for SecOps or CISOs, they will like to have consistent security policies for microservices and monolithic application. They will like to have a similar or same security posture even across the multi-cloud. So those are the things which customers have to really consider that how well my security footprint, uh, security posture is, how consistent it is, and where are the cracks in their security posture. But two areas which we see is the lack of inconsistency of security posture. And in many of the environment, the security for east-west traffic or security among the uh, microservices may not be as robust as for north-south traffic. Interesting. Are you confident in the ongoing development of Istio as a project? Um, since we haven't embraced it fully yet, I, I can't speak to it with personal experience, but I did see it waver a little bit, but I think it's still the de facto standard that people are using. I mean, I haven't checked on it yet recently. I don't know. It's Their feature velocity is amazing. Cool. And it is becoming simpler day by day with every release. Good, good. That's good to hear. Like, I think part of the concern is like with Google's moves to change the trademark requirements, there's some concern about the project, but it seems, Pankaj, you're pretty confident in it. Yes, it brings a lot of value. Is it complex? Yes, it is reasonably complex, but it is becoming simpler day by day. Great. Okay, well, thank you both for your time today. You know, this has been a really detailed discussion, and I learned a lot, especially on the security aspects of microservices and that issue that you bring up, Pankaj, the East-West communication and the lack of uh, consistency in security postures and how that's going to be resolved. But we went through a lot here, so appreciate both your perspectives. Thank you, Alex. Appreciate it. the time. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Lance. Thanks, Bakash. Citrix offers production-grade, fully supported application delivery solutions 
that provide the most comprehensive integration with Kubernetes platforms and open source tools, greater scale and lower latency, consistent application and API security, and a holistic observability stack. Listen to more episodes of the Newstack Bakers at thenewstack.io slash podcast. Please rate and review us on iTunes, like us on YouTube, and follow us on SoundCloud. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.